0: You've got enacted legislation, and then the judicial side of things. Thirdly, we've got the administrator, and in this case, it's the commissioner of taxation.
1: You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 146 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. So, today we cover the second part about how tax law is made. Last time we covered Parliament and legislation, today it is the courts and the ATO. Here's Robin Jacobson of Tax in Melbourne.
0: All right, so if we now have a chat about The judicial side of things. So, you've got enacted legislation, and then years later, somebody comes before the courts because they've had a dispute. Now, that's ignoring all the interim steps. So, what has actually happened along the way is there would have been a taxpayer who made a claim or didn't declare income or interpreted the law in such a way that was different from what the ATO thought. And it doesn't always mean there's tax avoidance or evasion involved, it can just be an interpretation of law. Now, the ATO, if they disagree with what the taxpayer has done, they will issue an amended assessment. And even before that, you often have conversations or reviews or points of contact before that amended assessment turns up. Then the process is if you disagree with the amended assessment, you object. The ATO will then make a decision on objection. Once you've got that decision on objection, if it's a question of fact or if it's an issue where you feel you want someone else to review the decision that the commissioner has made, then that can be a a point of going up to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. And the role of the tribunal is to step into the shoes of the commissioner and remake the decision that the commissioner made as if the tribunal was the commissioner. So they then arrive at a decision and they substitute their decision for whatever the commissioner's decision had previously been. If you disagree with that decision or if it is a matter of question of law, and it's always got to be a, a matter of law for it to be appealed any further, then it can go up to the federal court. So often we see tribunal decisions involving self-represented taxpayers and these are taxpayers who go before the tribunal but they don't have any legal representation. I won't say in all cases they they lose, but inevitably a self-represented taxpayer will not fare well against the tax office. And it's usually because had they sought legal advice, they would have been advised, you don't have a case here. So we often see um, those taxpayers unsuccessful in their claims But when we move up to the federal court, we're getting into more serious territory now. Court fees, of course, apply. If you lose, then costs are awarded against you. Generally, legal counsel is engaged. And at that point, we're getting into very much interpretations of what the law says. If you disagree with the decision of the federal court, and it's a single judge, just uh, just the one judge, then you can appeal that decision up to the full federal court. And that's where we have three judges. Obviously, decisions can be upheld. They can be overturned. Decisions can be unanimous across all three judges, or there can be a majority decision, which would be a a split of 2-1. Now, if you still don't agree with what the full federal court has said, you can apply for special leave to appeal up to the high court. Just to explain the hierarchy, the federal court is a court that interprets federal legislation. And because our tax law is federal law, it's not state-based law, that is why any matters on tax law... I heard before the federal court. Compare that, of course, with something like the criminal justice system, which comes up through the magistrates' court and the county court, etc. In New South Wales, you have the local and the district courts, but you ultimately end up in the Supreme Court of each state. But when we're talking tax law, it's federal court. With the high court, they are the highest court on the land. We used to have uh, something called the Privy Council, which sat above the high court, but we no longer have that in Australia. So, the decision of the high court is the final decision. It can be a single judge, three judges, five or the maximum of seven. Now, we've got a chief justice and then there are six other judges. You have to apply for special leave to go to the high court because there are only seven of them and they're dealing not just with tax law, but migration law and corporate law and criminal law and all sorts of other things. So, their time is very valuable. And they decide what cases they want to hear. When they decide they want to hear a case, they grant special leave to the relevant applicant. And these would generally be matters where it's either constitutional, because the Constitution can only be um, dealt with under the High Court, or it is a matter of precedential value. So there may have been a matter that hasn't come before the High Court before they look at the full federal court and they say look we want to examine the way that this decision has been made and so they will decide to take it on and there are actually some matters which are going before the high court at the moment and it'll be interesting to see of course which way they go but once the high court decision is made that is it that is the final decision let's talk about the ato so look this is obviously a huge area of law and guidance for taxpayers giving historical context Prior to 1992, we had people called assessors who worked at the ATO. So when you lodged your tax return, you'd send in the return, you'd give them lots of paper and lots of receipts, and these assessors who worked at the ATO would work out your tax position. But in 1992, self-assessment was introduced. And this means that the taxpayer needs to work out their own tax position, they lodge, And then there is a period of review following lodgement that the ATO can come back and review the affairs of that taxpayer. So even today, and we're talking nearly 30 years on from when self-assessment was introduced, that taxpayers don't understand when a notice of assessment turns up that that's not a guarantee that their case can't be reopened. An assessment can always be reopened uh, within four years ordinarily, two years for, for simpler affairs. And if there's a case of fraud and evasion, then on an indefinite basis. So, it's important to understand when you do lodge and you get that notice of assessment, the ATO has still got the right to come back and have a look at that later. But what self-assessment did was shift the burden back onto taxpayers. They then had to work out their own tax position. And in order to do that, the ATO provides enormous quantities of guidance, which enable taxpayers to work out their own tax position. So, these are broadly tax rulings, but they take on many, many different forms. So, those that are precedential in value, you know, we've got rulings that are binding and rulings that are not binding. So, for example, those that are binding include the tax rulings, determinations, class rulings, product rulings, fuel tax rulings, GST rulings and determinations. There are some miscellaneous tax rulings, that's called the MT series, but only if they're labelled legally binding. There are rulings on the wine equalisation tax, luxury car tax, self-managed funds, superannuation guarantee. Yeah, There are literally thousands of these. So these are all the, the binding documents. I see. So, so TR, so Taxation Rulings and
1: Taxation Determination, they're both binding? They
0: are binding. So if you follow what's in them, if you apply the principles in it, then that is binding on the commissioner. And if you follow that ruling then generally you're not going to run into too many problems with penalties and so on. And just remember that the tax you pay on a tax shortfall is different from any general interest charge because it needs to be paid back to the ATO and that's different again from any penalties. But often there will be penalties remitted if you followed a ruling but it happened to be the wrong position. But it's certainly binding on the commissioner.
1: And for income tax, the most common rulings are probably TR, so taxation rulings, TD, taxation determinations, and MT, miscellaneous taxation
0: rulings, correct? They would be the main ones, yes. Certainly the TRs and the TDs are the most common. But we've also got supplementing that things like ATO IDs, interpretative decisions. These are not binding on the commissioner. They are generally very sanitised facts. They're often very simple circumstances. But it gives us an idea of what the ATO is thinking there are decision impact statements. So every time there is a court decision that is final, the ATO will summarise the facts of the case, the ruling, the decision and the implications. So whether that decision means that we need to update our rulings or we need to provide further guidance or whatever the case may be.
1: And the decision impact statement is not binding in any way, It basically just outlines the ATO's thinking.
0: That's right. That's right. There are other documents that can be relied upon, things like the Advanced Guide to Small Business CGT Concessions, Fringe Benefits Tax Guides, Rental Property Guides, etc. But you've got to be very careful again as to which ones are binding and which ones aren't, and and that will tell you for each particular one. We then get into other types of documents, taxpayer alerts. These aren't binding, and a taxpayer alert is often an early warning system. So, the ATO issues details of an arrangement, they explain how it works, they say what they don't like about it, and it's really just to alert the market, look, this is out there, we don't like it, and this is why. And usually the taxpayer alerts eventually make their way into a a tax determination. Then we get into private rulings. So private binding rulings are only binding on the tax office for the taxpayer named in the ruling, for the year specified in the ruling, and for the arrangement that is described in the ruling. So, I think of these as being very similar to insurance policies. You know, if you tell an insurer the truth, you go and make a claim, they will honour that by paying out a benefit to you. But if you lie to the insurance company and say, look, I garage my car when in fact you don't, or you say you live in this postcode when in fact you don't, then they may find a reason not to honour that insurance policy in the event of a claim. And these private binding rulings are very similar in that respect. So if you implement the arrangement, as you've explained when you applied for the ruling, the ATO will stay by or stick by their position as they've explained it to you. But if you implement in in a different way, they will say, well, all bets are off. That's not what you applied to us for. You've done it differently. And the position we stated uh, no longer stands. They are useful documents in that, again, they tell us the ATO's position on things But people need to remember that these are not able to be relied upon by any other taxpayer. They are for the taxpayer who is the subject of the ruling only. And if you want that guidance, then you go and seek your own private binding ruling.
1: Australia has a relatively high percentage of tax agent engagement. Do you think that is due to us having
0: a self-assessment set up? I think it is a combination of two factors. We have a very high reliance. In fact, I've got a feeling we're something like the second highest in the world behind Italy in terms of tax agent usage. 75% of individuals use a tax agent, so only 25% are self-lodgers, and it's around 95% of businesses use a tax agent. And I think it's due to these two factors. You've named one of them, certainly self-assessment where because the onus is back on the taxpayer to get it right, they want to make sure they're getting it right. And unless you're a a tax expert, the average person on the street couldn't be expected to keep abreast of all the changes in the law, what the law says, the the updated rulings, the cases, the implications. And, And that's why we have tax experts in this country. But the second reason is because over the decades, we've had successive governments continually change the law. It's become very complex. I exist professionally as a tax trainer. I do this full time because there are enough firms out there that need the law explained to them and need to keep up to date with it all. If we had a really simple tax system, there wouldn't be a need for tax experts and there certainly wouldn't be a need for tax trainers. But because our system is complicated and because it is difficult to sit there and read one provision without understanding how it impacts with all the other provisions and all the other guidance... It is another reason why I think people engage tax agents. They just want to be sure that they're getting it right. People would have noticed in recent years the ATO getting a lot more active. Now, this is in part due to increased funding from the tax office or for them from the government. But it's also because they're getting much better and they're getting very savvy with technology. So their ability to data match depending who you speak to, they are data matching high hundreds of millions of transactions a year. It could even be over a billion transactions a year now. So they are using very sophisticated technology to track people's activities and make sure that what they're saying in their tax returns is actually consistent with what's going on in the real world. So i give you a very basic example. They still use the concept of asset betterment. Now, this is where they look at assets at two different points in time, And if the increase in your worth, your value of assets can't be explained by tax returns, then it gives rise to questions. So, for example, if you're going overseas five times a year, if you're driving around in an expensive car, if you've got kids in private school, if you're buying up properties or artwork or investing in racehorses, et cetera, but you lodge your tax return, and it says that you're you're earning $30,000 a year and you're selling hot dogs outside the MCG on a, a Friday night football match, they may say, hold on, where are you getting the income? So very cleverly, they do projects. For example, they did one a few years ago where they got insurance details of lots of interesting assets, artwork, racehorses, helicopters, boats, aeroplanes, expensive cars. People who own those sorts of assets, they insure them. And so, a very good source of information was these insurance policies. And you go back to those people and say, well, you've got all these assets. How did you afford to buy them? Now, if they've got a tax return that shows they earn a million dollars a year salary, then great, it can be explained. But if their salary is much lower or they've got no other substantial sources of income, then questions need to be asked about where that came from. They're using data matching in terms of passport movements, e-tag records, metadata on mobile phones. You know, there's been a lot of noise in the last few years about work-related expenses and people overclaiming those because based on reviews they've done of tax returns, they're finding high levels of errors. People claiming things that they're not entitled to claim due to misunderstanding or in some cases even deliberately claiming something that they're not entitled to claim. So increasingly, we're seeing much more engagement by the ATO, more communications, more webcasts, more use of social media more fact sheets being published and all this is designed to arm us with the information we need so that when we lodge our tax returns, hopefully we're getting them right.
1: The ATO it definitely has become a lot more data savvy as we all have. Do you also find when you look back over the last almost three decades that you have been in tax, do you also find that the ATO has become more friendly? Because I actually find the ATO very... For example, the tax agent phone line, you can always call. You don't have to wait long. I find the communication that comes out of the ATO is usually in a friendly tone. I just find the ATO quite cooperative when I compare it to what I hear about other countries.
0: Look, I think that is a very fair comment. My experience when I go back to my first dealings with the tax office when I was in practice back in the early to mid-90s, It was the days of you almost felt like the call centre was being manned by people who used to be on the the call centres at pizza shops. You felt that people who answered the phone didn't know what they were saying. You would ring three times, you get three different answers, so you pick the one you wanted. I really feel that those days have moved on. And it's been a concerted effort over the decades to improve the commercial way in which the ATO approaches its activities. But I've got to say a big part of that is the appointment of Chris Jordan as commissioner. He, of course, came from the Board of Taxation. He previously worked in the accounting sector. He was with one of the big four. And a number of his senior staff, I'm referring to senior commissioners and deputy commissioners and assistant commissioners, many of them have been in practice. They have worked in accounting firms or law firms or, in fact, business. And that means they've got quite a commercial approach to the world. It was some years ago that there was a directive at the ATO that the tax officers were to start calling all of us taxpayers, clients. And that was deliberately a psychological shift so that when the tax officers were dealing with the public, they would regard them as their clients and you're more likely to look after them than regard them all as tax avoiders and and treat them like the enemy. And I think that is just part of it, but their improvement in their guidance, their willingness to consult and and through my consultations in recent years, I, I have to commend the ATO on the collegiality. It is just not the case that I walk in and we have conversations that are confrontational or stilted. It's quite the opposite. It's open, it's frank, it is honest, it is willing to work together so that the best result can be obtained for the ATO and for the taxpayer. And that doesn't always mean about you know raising the most revenue possible. It's about getting the right message out. So I think the ATO has come a long way in my time in the profession. I think they would be regarded as one of the most commercial government departments to deal with. And I think others would have perhaps differing experiences when it comes to ASIC or the State Revenue Office or WorkCover and things like that. But certainly the ATO, I'm not saying they're perfect. I'm not saying in all cases you're going to have an exceptional experience with them. But I think in the main, most people are finding that the ATO is reasonable to deal with. You can enter into payment arrangements, you can talk through situations and may be pleasantly surprised if you actually engage with the ATO.
1: Welcome back. So tax law is made through three arms of government, parliament, courts and the ATO as the administrator. In the next episode, episode 147, Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Sydney will give some insights into his work as a tax lawyer. Sorry to butt in. This is correct. If you listen to this episode in August 2019 or later, then the next episode will indeed be episode 147 with insights of a tax lawyer. But if you listen to this now in July 2019, then you will have noticed that this and the last episode were completely out of order again and the reason for this is once more the flu. Tex was hit by a flu epidemic and so took much longer than anticipated to review and approve their two episodes. And so we had to skip these for the time being. But now everybody at Tex is up and standing again. And so we have been able to go back and publish these two episodes. So for those of you who have been listening to tax talks over the past two weeks. For you, the next episode will be episode 153, where Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal will talk about shareholder loan forgiveness. What happens when shareholders forgive the loan they made to their private company? Can they claim a capital loss? This is the question Andrew Henshaw will go through in the next episode in response to a listener question. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaus for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.